Moving ahead through your Tuesday as we open it up for midday on the Rural Radio Network. And welcome, I'm Dirk Christensen. We have the roundtable to tell you all about what you can expect on today's midday program. And we start off, and we don't have to play Where is Susan because we pretty much know where she is. She's out of pocket right now. But we have, I, I you know, from my standpoint, there isn't about maybe... 2% difference between you guys' voices. I cannot tell sometimes whether it's you, Shaley Peters, or whether it's Susan Littlefield. Well, keeping that in mind, moving forward, we may just play tricks on you now, Dirk. That might be, yeah, <laughs> that might be the next uh, the, the next big event here on the Midday program. We've gotten through the, the Where's Susan game. Now we can try the Trick Dirk game. Uh, game. Yes. Who are you talking to? I don't know. So here we go with Shaley, who has the ag headlines for us today coming up on midday. And, of course, the issue that won't go away, property taxes. And a big interview. That was a pretty good amount of what was said yesterday by the governor. That's right. And uh, Bryce will kick off our midday coverage with the governor. He was, of course, live on Facebook last night with the governor covering tons of property tax being the big one. But a lot of other issues as well. So if you didn't get a chance, hop on our Facebook, check out that live video. Bryce interviewed the governor last night and covered a wide range of uh, issues affecting agricultural producers here in the state. But he's going to give us an excerpt of that at midday at 1219. And then Bryce will be back at uh, 1245 for our newsmaker. Dicamba is a big one that we've talked a lot about in there um, doing some individual training for farmers, and uh, Extension Educator Clyde Ogg will tell us all about that. Um, and then at 117, Clay Patton is back. He's going to do round two with Professor UNL Ag Econ Professor Richard Perrin talking about why fuel blenders are willing to pay more for sweet sorghum ethanol. He had kind of a part one last week. We're back with part two this week covering that. So all sorts of stuff headed your way on the ag side of things for midday. Very good. Thank you, Shaylee. That's uh, that's an interesting uh, story. I'll listen to that more about that sweet. sweet. I still can't figure out how sweet sorghum is any better. <laughs> from an ethanol standpoint, but we'll, we'll figure it out. I know that cattle like it better. That's right. <laughs> Tune in, Dirk, at 117. You'll find out. <laughs> I'll do that. Thanks, Shaley. Appreciate it. And over here on sports, of course, Jason Jorgensen. Nebraska continues to inch closer and closer to a potential NCAA tournament berth for the yeah. men. First win in 28 years in Madison, Wisconsin last that's night. something. They rallied from 11 down to knock off the Badgers. They ended that game on a 30-8 to run. Got the thoughts from head coach Tim Miles on how the Huskers were able to turn that one around. It didn't look good with about 10 minutes left. They were down. They had foul problems, and they got it done. Eight and two in conference action so far. Also coming up in sports, uh, we'll tell you about the reigning two-time MIAA Women's Basketball Player of the Week. That would be UNK's Michaela Berry. She is a native of Battle Creek, and she is having a fantastic season. So we'll touch on all that. Also, we'll talk about a couple of Husker football players who have ended up in the hospital because the workouts were too tough. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe the workouts are where they ought to have been. Uh, there's some debate on that. All right, very good. We'll listen for it. Bob Brogan on business. Wall Street's down sharply. Consumer confidence is up. And a new health care company is being created. We'll have details on that coming up. All this and more on today's Midday. 
Paul Perkins joins us now with Ag Weather. It's brought to you by Coolman Repair. And we're going to see some slightly more than seasonal temperatures here for a bit. Yeah, today and tomorrow, not looking too bad, but by the end of the week, uh, trend towards those colder temperatures. Mm-hmm. But right now, we're eyeing that warmer air off towards west. It's getting closer. We do have temperatures in the upper 40s to low 50s across much of the sand hills into the Nebraska Panhandle. A lot of us still in the 30s to the 40s. We also have some low 50s in northeast Colorado and northwest Kansas. Dirk, a lot of people wondering about what's the weather going to be like tomorrow morning for the lunar eclipse. That's going to peak at about 7.30 central time tomorrow morning. And it's a big eclipse because it's a supermoon, because it's slightly larger than normal because of the closeness of the moon to the Earth. It's also a blue moon because it's the second full moon of the month. And it's going to be a blood moon because of the look from the eclipse tomorrow morning. Okay. Now, now that's when the Earth's shadow passes over the moon, right? Yeah, it won't be like back in August when we had all the hype of the total, solar yeah, eclipse. Yeah, yeah. yeah this will so be this will be safer to look at. <laughs> you won't <laughs> yeah, need you special won't glasses. So. <laughs> Good idea. But right. yeah, the, the Earth will cast a shadow onto the moon tomorrow morning. It's going to peak at about seven thirty. Right now, the outlook is for some partly to mostly cloudy skies. The better chances of fewer clouds going to be the farther south you go in Kansas. L- l- little uh, note from experience here. <laughs> Do not wear your eclipse glasses for a lunar eclipse or you'll miss the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, I mean, it looks like a mere dot in the, if, at best. But anyway, yeah. So 7.30 tomorrow morning. You'll just have to see what the weather is and as you're getting your day started. But for today, we're looking at a ridge of high pressure moving overhead and a warm front tracking to the east, giving us temperatures today about 15 to 20 degrees above normal temperatures near record warm levels over southwest Nebraska and northwest Kansas. Those warmer dry winds also leading to near critical fire conditions in north central Kansas. A weak Pacific cold front will track southeast tonight. Then will turn our winds around to the northwest. The Pacific air behind this front will cool our temperatures just slightly for tomorrow. For the last half of the week into the weekend, there will be increased intrusions of Arctic air, but they will be brief glancing blows of Arctic air. Expect more wild swings in our temperatures over the next two weeks with more brushes of Arctic cold than we probably saw the last half of this month. An Arctic front going to drop our temperatures for Thursday. That front, though, then moves back to the north as a warm front for a milder day Friday. The next Arctic blast arrives Saturday and holds on for the weekend. Several minor disturbances over the weekend giving us some chances at mainly light precipitation. These disturbances will come in from the northwest, so they won't have a whole lot of moisture to work with. Late Saturday night, though, into Sunday, we could see about one to four inches of fluffy snow. In our long-term forecast, Nebraska and Kansas temperatures are forecast to start cooler than normal early next week. Temperatures will then trend warmer than normal the middle of next week through February 12th. So the cold blast not going to last long. Early next week, slightly above normal precipitation expected in Nebraska and Kansas. It will turn drier than normal the middle of next week through the 12th. In the markets, weather factors include ongoing dryness in central Argentina and chronic drought in wheat areas of the southern plains. Warm air will continue to surge east today in advance of a Pacific front. That warm air will be short-lived as a pair of cold fronts will result in the return of very cold air to most areas east of the Rockies by the end of the week. Sub-zero temperatures will occur this weekend through the northern plains and upper Midwest. Parts of the northern plains this weekend could get below 20 below. In advance of the weekend, cold wave, some rain and snow is expected across the south, east, and lower Midwest starting on Thursday. The drought getting worse across the southern plains. 79% of Oklahoma's winter wheat rated very poor to poor. That is up 
from 10% just two months ago. Kansas wheat, 44% very poor to poor, and that is up 30 percentage points from a couple of months ago. It's going to remain mostly hot and dry in Argentina the rest of this week. The stress is significant to the soybeans now in the pod filling stage and also corn in the filling stage. There are estimates soybean production in Argentina will decline at least 10% from a year ago. The pattern more variable in Brazil. Crop conditions currently favorable in the south, but they are watching a drive pattern through the end of the week. It could be possibly linked to the dryness in Argentina and central Brazil. Additional moderate to heavy rain will hinder soybean ripening harvest. Both soybean harvest and second crop corn planting running slower than last year in central Brazil, but still in line with the long-term average. Boy, those numbers are not good at all for the wheat, are they? No, really going downhill over the last few months here. Now, just to review again, what's the best time to see the super moon eclipse thing? Yeah, super moon blood. Yeah, just the total lunar eclipse to call it short. 7.30 tomorrow morning, central time. Okay, and we'll be looking. They say the western U.S. gets a good eclipse. Exactly, because the moon will actually be starting to get towards the setting stage by tomorrow morning. So, yeah, at that time, 7.30. Well, we'll look for it. When you need meteorology or <laughs> astronomy. <laughs> there you at go. Any time. And Just we do have information on that on our Facebook page for KRVN, by the way. Very too. good. All but, right. But yeah, weather at krvn.com. Two of the largest meat packing companies in the world invest in meat alternatives. The discussion continues on how ELDs fit into agriculture, and we hear from Chabella Guzman on what producers are doing to diversify in today's volatile ag marketplace. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Tyson Foods reported it has purchased a minority stake in Memphis Meats, a Bay Area company developing technologies to produce meat using cell culture technology. Memphis has produced a beef meatball and a chicken strip so far in 2017 into early 2018, though the company says it's likely it'll be several years before its products are found in stores and restaurants. Memphis Meats and other startups working on alternatives to traditionally slaughtering of livestock tout that the technology is a cheaper and more environmentally friendly way to produce meat for a growing and increasingly affluent global population. Tyson, the top U.S. meat processor by sales, also purchased a stake in the plant-based burger maker Beyond Meat in 2016. Tyson Chief Executive Tom Hayes says that no one knows exactly what the future of food will look like. That's why we're exploring new approaches. Tyson and Memphis didn't disclose the size of the stake which Tyson made through its venture capital fund. Memphis last year drew $17 million in new funding, including investments from Cargill, another major U.S. meat packer. Cargill didn't just stop at Memphis Meats, as it's recently been reported that it also upped its bet on plant-based meat alternatives and other vegetarian-friendly foods. Cargill has entered into a joint venture with Purus, a developer of pea-based protein ingredients used to make meat alternatives, snack bars, and vegan spreads. With Cargill as a backer, Purus will now be able to open up a second manufacturing plant. The conversation on the electronic logging devices, or ELD, is as continuing as the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration has announced that the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association has requested an exemption for the ELD devices for motor carriers considered to be a small transportation trucking business. The Organization for Independent Drivers has long contended that smaller, safer carriers should be completely exempt from what the organization contends is a costly, unproven regulation. This request to the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration would also pair well for agriculture companies, as many ag and other commodity haulers are small, independent trucking firms. 
In today's agriculture marketplace, producers are having to find alternative revenue streams to diversify their operation. Jabella Guzman has more on one way producers are diversifying their operations. More people are finding sheep and goats are a good way to diversify their production. Kelly Bruns, a lamb producer and director at the West Central Research and Extension Center in North Platte, explains. Both sheep and goat numbers uh, statewide have uh, been increasing. And I believe one of the reasons they've been increasing is because uh, from an economic standpoint, you can get into those flocks as well as herds of goats with less investment. But we have many instances of people that here today might have anywhere from 100 to 150 head of goats, and they've got into those uh, operations because of less investment, the opportunity to diversify their uh, cattle operations, and then to uh, market those, maybe in some cases, in our communities where there's a greater ethnic population. The Nebraska Sheep and Goat Producers Association and the Nebraska Extension held a lambing and kidding school this past weekend to introduce new producers to what they maybe didn't know about or needed more information on sheep and goats. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. Thank you, Chabella. To build, you must concentrate. To maintain, you must diversify. I'm Clay Patton. Keep a straight row. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. On Wednesday, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts will sit in front of the Revenue Committee to defend he and Senator Smith's plan to lower property taxes. Good afternoon to you on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Bryce Duskit reporting. The Property Tax Cuts and Opportunity Act is the topic of the discussion at the hearing, which will happen on Wednesday. Ahead of that hearing, I sat down with the governor to discuss a variety of topics on a Facebook Live conversation last night. I began by asking the governor to give us an overview of what the bill would do. Sure. What I, Senator Smith and I have worked on is LB 947, the Nebraska Property Tax Cuts and Opportunity Act. And what that is, is we took a lot of last summer and fall to talk with various uh, groups, ag groups, uh, business groups, senators seeking tax relief, to come up with a new bill for this legislative session that will allow us to deliver property tax relief and build a consensus to be able to get that bill to my desk. As uh, your listeners uh, may know, that you have to get 33 votes or a supermajority on just about any issue uh, right now in the legislature. And so we're very focused on bringing that, the, everybody together to be able to talk about it. And what we've done is create a framework where we're going to uh, take our existing tax credits and turn it into two new tax credit programs, one for agriculture, one for homeowners, that will be based on state taxes paid. And for example, it'll be a 10% uh, tax credit, refundable tax credit, based upon the property taxes, the overall property taxes you pay to start with, and then move that up over time for our goal to get to 30%. And we believe that over the course of 10 years, that will allow us to get to $4 billion in property tax relief through that program for both agricultural and homeowners. So that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, it has a couple of other pieces as well, one having to do with taking our income tax rates down to 6.69%, and then also to provide about $10 million over two years for workforce development, or you know, something like job training perhaps, to make sure we've got the right trained, skilled workforce. And what we do is we think that this creates that framework to be able to help us pull together our ag business interests, our urban business interests, our pro-growth centers, all together to get that coalition we need to be able to get to that consensus, get a bill through the legislature, and get it to my desk. Talk about that workforce element, because that's different than most uh, property tax relief bills we've seen come to the legislature recently. Well, again, the idea is we have to build a consensus. We have to get 33 votes, which means we're going to need a lot of participants. 
And so, uh, you know, for example, if you, if you took just our rural centers, I count about 19. You can argue that up or down, one or two, but it's not 25. And it's not anywhere close to 33, which means we have to have other senators to be involved. And there are senators, for example, who are interested in workforce development. Uh, you know, this could be job training dollars, it could be another program. But again, it's a way to help bring in other senators to be a part of the bill so we can get enough votes to get the bill to my desk. What specific sectors of Nebraska will stand to benefit the most? Well, the people who are going to benefit the most out of this bill are going to be agricultural and homeowners. Uh, because what we're going to, have to do is focus these dollars on Nebraskans. So by changing this into a refundable tax credit, what we do is we say we can take these dollars and just put them to Nebraskans so that, say that big out-of-state landowner uh, you know, who doesn't live here, they're not going to be eligible for it. Right now, under the current system, they're getting our tax dollars. What this will do is make sure they don't get those because we're just going to focus on Nebraskans. We think, for example, just immediately, just because of that, that will increase the amount of dollars available for Nebraskans by 14% in agriculture. And for homeowners, it goes up about 6%. And then we also have the ability to take that 10% tax credit up to 12, 14, 16, with the goal of getting to 30%. And again, that's how we increase and give more tax relief in the future. You can watch that Facebook Live interview at facebook.com slash KRVN Radio. I'm Bryce Duskett on the Rural Radio Network. It's midday on the Rural Radio Network, and let's check sports now with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, Nebraska continues to improve its chances of potentially making the NCAA tournament with a nice 74-63 come-from-behind victory at Wisconsin last night. The Huskers actually trailed by 11 midway through the second half, but closed the game on a 30-8 run to win in Madison for the first time since 1990. And head coach Tim Miles was proud of how his team finished things up. I was just really happy with those guys. They were tough-minded, and to get a road win with the really unusual, difficult circumstances, you know, feels good to be 8-4 and four here. Miles made his comments on his post-game show on the Husker Sports Network. Nebraska was playing its fourth game in eight days. With that victory, they improved to 17-8 overall. They remain in fourth place in the conference standings. It's Nebraska's best conference mark after 12 games since 1999. And James Palmer Jr. was large again last night for the Huskers, scoring a game-high 28 points. Wide receiver Tajon Lindsay and defensive lineman Dylan Owen were hospitalized, believe it or not, after a winter workout, but have been released and returned to the team. Nebraska head coach Scott Frost confirmed that to the Lincoln Journal-Star this week. Lindsay and Owen were both treated for overexertion. Lindsay was in the hospital for three days while Owen was hospitalized for two. For a second consecutive week, UNK's Michaela Berry has been named the MIAA Women's Basketball Athlete of the Week. Barry, the 5'7'' senior from Battle Creek, led UNK to road wins against Lindenwood and Lincoln last week by averaging 29 points, 4 assists, 4 rebounds, and 3 steals per game. She also sat out just 5 minutes over the weekend. Now, Barry started her career at Wayne State, then went to Hastings College, and then followed Coach Amy to UNK, and she says it's been a great ride. She's helped me with a lot of personal things that I've gone through, and she's helped me develop, or she's developed me into the player I am, so I credit that to her. Because without her, I don't, I don't even know if I'd be playing basketball anymore. Because at Wayne, I went tastings and I didn't know if I wanted to keep playing. And then she told me to give her a shot. I gave her that shot, and it turned out to be something special. And our relationship is truly something I'll cherish forever. Mary's fifth in the MIAA this year in scoring at 18 points per game. And earlier this season, she tied the school record of 43 points in a game. Her efforts have helped UNK be one of the most improved teams in the conference. They are 16 and three. They will host Washburn on Thursday and Emporia State on Saturday afternoon. 
UNK's Jared Heinrich has been named the MIAA Wrestler of the Week. The sophomore from Geneva ran his winning streak to 17 in a row this weekend. Now 30-6 and six on the year, he has beaten four ranked individuals during that winning streak. He also is 18-0 on the year against D2 competition. That is a look at sports. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Partly cloudy skies tonight, lows around 30 in the east and central, and mid and upper 20s in the west. I'm Dave Schroeder. Business and community leaders have formed a group to support the University of Nebraska system as budget cuts loom. The group is called One Nebraska Coalition. It took out newspaper ads across the state over the weekend as part of its effort to share the good news of the university. Governor Pete Ricketts has proposed a mid-year cut of 2% for the system, the state colleges, and many state agencies. They would face another cut of 4% in the next biennium. State revenue reports have been disappointing for many months. Former State Senator Mike Flood chairs the coalition's board and says that the coalition isn't quarreling with the governor. Rather, the coalition wants to support the system over the long run. Nebraska lawmakers have returned to the state capitol today to resume work on tax and budget issues. Senator Matt Williams of Gothenburg says there are also some issues waiting in the wings. We, we will be looking at measures on a constitutional amendment to do Medicaid expansion. We'll, we'll be talking about that at some point. We have some various gun legislation, uh, corrective action for uh, the corrections department on some things. And again, we're faced with a significant discussion that we will have as a state on our policy on uh, medical marijuana. So I think those are some of the other highlight issues. Testimony on the first of several property tax relief measures was taken last week. Public hearings for other tax reform measures are ahead. LB 947, Governor Pete Ricketts' measure that would address property taxes and offer refundable income tax credits worth about 10% of property taxes paid, is scheduled for a public hearing tomorrow afternoon. It would also lower the top individual and corporate tax rates. The Kansas House has approved a bill that would toughen penalties for habitual drunken driving. On the same day, it passed a bill allowing restaurants to begin serving alcohol earlier in the morning. One bill would allow restaurants to begin serving alcohol at 6 a.m. rather than the current 9 a.m. Restaurants and bars would still have to stop serving at 2 a.m. Supporters say the bill would bring the state in line with surrounding states, which often attract breakfast and brunch business away from Kansas. The bill faced little opposition. The other bill would increase the felony severity level for habitual drunken drivers who kill someone in a crash. That bill passed unanimously. Both bills still require Senate approval. Our app is a perfect companion to your phone. Download it free in the App Store or Google Play. Reporting from the News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Recently, the Environmental Protection Agency made some dicamba herbicide-restricted-use pesticides, known as RUPs. But what does that mean to you? Good afternoon to you on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Bryce Dusky reporting. Clyde Ogg is an extension educator working from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's East Campus. He joined me recently as we talked about dicamba and how it is now a restricted-use pesticide. A restricted-use pesticide requires the person who wants to apply it or use it to hold a pesticide license. And that's really the big factor uh, that's involved there. These 
new dicamba labels that we're referring to, this Extendamax, the Fexapan, and the Ingenia. Those previously were not RUPs, but beginning this season, they are RUPs. So they do require a pesticide license. And so how do people go through the process of getting a pesticide license? Right. The pesticide license is a little bit dependent on what you do. If you're a farmer or rancher and you're applying to your own uh, property, you would need what is referred to as a private pesticide license. Uh, If you're doing it for hire, you would need a commercial license. So those that are doing it for hire and need the commercial license would take an exam uh, in order to obtain that license. The private applicators attend an approved training session and in that process receive their license. And the university is assisting in this process. Right. The university has been in that game all along, and we have provide the training to help commercial applicators prepare for those exams, as well as each year the county-based extension educators provide the training for private applicators. You and I were talking about specific labels, equal additional training, so talk about that and walk us through there. Right. Those three uh, new uh, restricted-use pesticide labels uh, that contain dicamba have language on those labels that require uh, dicamba-specific training. And that's what's causing all the interest this year. And uh, people who plan to use those three products do definitely need to obtain this additional training. Uh, UNL responded uh, by uh, developing an online training course. That is available by going to pested.unl.edu and you'll find the information about that. There's no additional cost to that particular training. Then the county-based educators have taken that same curriculum and they will host face-to-face trainings at their counties. And for that information, you need to either contact that county directly or you can obtain that information on a website that the Nebraska Department of Ag hosts. That website is nda.nebraska.gov. And then you have to look for a link to dicamba. And this issue gets a little tricky because if you if you go through this process, you'll be either added to a list or you have to add your name to a list to prove that you have been certified in this training. So walk us through what does this list mean and how do I get on the list? Right. The, the list is simply a list of those that have completed the training. Uh, and uh, UNL or whoever the provider is that is presenting the training uh, presides presents a list to Nebraska Department of Ag of the person's name and their applicator license, so then they in turn add it to their list. Uh, The labels require some sort of proof that you've attended training. Uh, NDA or Nebraska Department of Ag has determined that this list is the definitive proof. So what I advise my applicators is once completing the training, allow about a week or 10 days and then go to that website and confirm that you're on the list. And just tell me if you can't talk to this, but what happens if someone is applying dicamba and they're, they have not been certified? Right. Actually, any violation of any pesticide label is a, a violation of the Nebraska Pesticide Act. And so the Nebraska Department of Agriculture is the regulatory agency in charge of that uh, particular law, and uh, they can take action all the way from a warning letter uh, to fines to uh, criminal proceedings, depending on the severity of violation. Mm-hmm. Now, here we're talking a relatively small uh, violation that would most likely result in a warning letter. 
So I know there's a couple important websites we want to remind folks of. First, the Department of Agriculture's. Right. The Nebraska Department of Ag website would be nda.nebraska.gov. Look towards the bottom of the page for dicamba information. On that website are all the critical pieces. You, you have the list of people that have completed the training. You have a list of all approved training courses. That includes both University of Nebraska as well as all of the registrants. Uh, themselves are providing training. Uh, in addition to those pieces are links to the labels. In addition to those uh, items, you also will find links to the individual pesticide labels as well as additional information that the applicator needs to be aware of linked to each one of those labels. And UNL, of course, is a, a great resource between the website as well as the extension educators that are out in the field. So uh, if people have questions about this, where should they go? Right. Our uh, University of Nebraska website related to pesticide safety is pested, P-E-S-T-E-D, dot U-N-L, dot E-D-U. And there's a full range of information for both commercial and, and private applicators, all the training courses that are available this year, and uh, all, all, a lot of di- additional information. Clyde, anything else you want to add that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I think the, the take-home message here is that these new pesticide labels are, are very complicated. Uh, we cover a range of uh, information that the applicator has to be in compliance with. So we get back to the take-home message of always read every pesticide label thoroughly that you plan to use and be familiar with the content and follow it carefully. That was Clyde Ogg. He's an extension educator working from University of Nebraska-Lincoln's East Campus. On the Rural Radio Network, I'm Bryce Duskit. Next, we talk with Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities, about these livestock futures. Boy, we had some activity in the movement of these uh, livestock today. Oh, gosh, we sure did. Boy, we were all over the place uh, in the cattle, just... Uh, higher, lower, and uh, finished up. Basically, uh, uh, for the most part, a little lower in the live cattle, but higher in the feeder cattle. And it, it, and we were under some pretty good pressure early in the in the uh, trade. We started out basically lower, right across the board in the cattle. But uh, uh, as the trade wore on, and we got to uh, the uh, cutouts that came in uh, a little bit higher. And then heard of uh, some some trade at 126. Uh, we started to uh, come back, and uh, through the remainder of the day, we were on pushing uh, to the upside. Then right at the very end, the, the live cattle uh, fell off, but it wasn't anything uh, of any big deal. Uh, we just finished uh, mostly lower there. Uh, over the feeder snow, they did manage to stay higher just even despite the fact that the grain was rallying. So uh, it was a very uh, interesting day, and I I think uh, basically coming from uh, the higher cutouts and the report of a uh, 126 trade, which uh, I think uh, kind of surprised some people. Wasn't very many, but just enough, just that price. Over in the hogs, uh, we stayed lower uh, pretty much the whole day. The only one that finished higher was uh, February. The cash seemed to be about steady. The cutouts were a little lower at noon, but uh, very choppy trade there, and we finished mixed. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. This is the Rural Radio Network. 
A different crop may help western Nebraska producers' balance sheets. It also may help improve ethanol. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. UNL recently conducted a study on sweet sorghum not only as a crop alternative to corn for western Nebraska producers, but also as a potential different feedstock for Great Plains corn ethanol plants. So talking with us today is Professor of Ag Economics for UNL, Richard Perrin. And Professor Perrin, looking and taking this directly from the study, sorghum ethanol can have a 50 to 35 cent per gallon higher producing uh, cost versus uh, corn ethanol. But blenders are willing to pay much more for sweet sorghum ethanol than for corn ethanol. Professor, why are uh, distillers willing to pay more for sweet sorghum than, say, corn? Well, that's an excellent uh, question. People who are willing to pay are the blenders who are under mandates by the renewable fuel standard to blend into the consumer road fuel supply certain amounts of different kinds of ethanol. So what matters here is not that the ethanol is different between the sweet sorghum ethanol and corn ethanol. What matters is that the renewable fuel standards require that different different amounts of different categories of fuels must be blended. And the fuel from uh, fuel made from grain starch such as corn starch is the kind of the, the vanilla variety of ethanol category while sweet sorghum it is an advanced biofuel because it reduces greenhouse gases more than does corn ethanol basically so they're in two different categories of mandate by the RFS and therefore there are two different markets for those fields so they they're not in the same they would not be in the same market and professor for producers that you know they've they've experienced several years of down commodity prices they go i want to try something different i want to expand from what we're doing to see if there's more profit potential in some how can they push forward to have ethanol producers change their setup slightly to accommodate sweet sorghum and to make this a viable option for them to grow right now i don't think they can and the reason is because it's just barely a break-even process but this price differential of perhaps six cents or so, uh, it's barely a break-even proposition for the plant and for the farmer. There's just not enough extra money there to pay them both to compensate them for changing their practices. So unless we can get a more certain and more certain premium for the sweet sorghum ethanol, which doesn't seem very likely given the tenuousness of the RFS program, I don't think we can count on that premium to be able to make the system work. So the other option is yields of sweet sorghum relative to yields of corn. Now, sweet sorghum is a a crop that does not receive very much attention, and we have some new uh, research projects underway that are looking at genetics and root uh, characteristics and so on that might make that might increase the yields of sweet sorghum quite a bit so i think that's really the only prospect that's going to make this a viable proposition that's professor richard Perrin of unl he's an ag economics professor and headed up the study on sweet sorghum as not only a potential uh, rotational crop used for western nebraska producers in place of corn but also that it's possible use and ability in uh, great plains corn ethanol plants professor we thank you for joining us you're listening to the rural radio Network. 
Grain markets today close higher, led by double-digit rally in Kansas City wheat futures. Let's talk with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter, This Week in Grain. Uh, there has to be some optimism here when it comes to these uh, grain and soybean futures prices. Now I guess the question is, how short are the fund managers? Yeah, so... The saying right now would be, uh, you know, in markets of wheat, you got to strike while the iron is hot. The iron is starting to heat up. And today, you know, we gapped open last night off those condition numbers. Uh, very, very poor conditions down in Kansas and uh, you know, 44% poor to very poor, which is saying something for this time of year. And, you know, now it's about who's going to step in and try to sell this thing. Now, you know, with wheat, it's a little bit of a different, different animal and say if this was happening in corn domestically because, you know, we, we're going to lose demand on these rallies in wheat. You know, we're not really a price maker anymore. We're a price taker. And given that the Black Sea is dominating the export markets, we'll probably see more shift that way. Now, it doesn't mean the board can't continue to rally. A year ago, the front month, you know, on a spring wheat move, keep in mind, up in the Dakotas, uh, went all the way up to 570 right before harvest in the face of a record Russian crop. So, you know, I think this could be just the start of it. I look for maybe a test of 570 July if you're looking for some kind of out-of-this-world numbers. Talked to a, a client today, and you know he's he's long some calls, and more. I'm kind of asking like, where would you sell some wheat if you wanted to? Even and he said, I wouldn't sell anything right now because as of right now, my estimates would be I'd grow very little. So you're not even going to see the U.S. I think uh, farmers step in and sell it. What will happen is old crop will get moved, and that's kind of uh, you know what we're looking. Probably some highs there in the the mid to low fives in the short term. And what happened far as corn and soybeans today? Well, corn, I think, is the, I don't say the whipping post right now, but, I mean, that's they're just going to trail this higher. Now, corn has the story that I think wheat would actually benefit from a little bit if, if Russia would, would have a problem. Argentina certainly has some issues, and I'm sure you've discussed this all morning uh, on other corn, corn analysts, that the issues in Argentina are, uh, are just beginning, and they're writing down yields. A 15% yield drop right now is what some estimates are, are being thrown around. Now, it's early. Uh, rains could certainly change it, but for the next three weeks, we're looking at a weather continuation pattern. So, uh, I think corn has some upside here. The carry really hasn't come in at all, and that's something I'm kind of watching. I would like that front month March to gain on December. We're not seeing that very much yet, but it's still early. I look for further price action to the upside, probably a test of 370 before this thing's all said and done. At that point, producers who have to deliver off JFM are going to get put to a decision. Uh, and that's where, when we say sell the carry, look at July prices. You might see a you know close to a 394-hour handle on that. Thanks, John. John Payne. Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniel Zag Marketing Chicago. Be sure to go to DanielZagMarketing.com. I'm Dewey Nelson.